This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with writer Tim Ferriss about the strategies he has used to change his life. Anytime that I take off in a plane, I ask myself, if I died right now, would I be happy with what I've been doing for the last 24 hours? Here's Debbie Millman. According to Tim Ferriss, we can be great cooks with fit bodies, and we shouldn't have to spend so much time at work. That is, if we follow the counsel in his best-selling books, The 4-Hour Workweek, The 4-Hour Body, and The 4-Hour Chef. His central idea is that we can all be a lot more efficient in our lives if we're willing to rethink and redesign our habits and routines. His latest book was born out of the interviews he's conducted on his extraordinarily popular podcast, The Tim Ferriss Show. The book is called Tools of Titans, The Tactics, Routines, and Habits of Billionaires, Icons, and World-Class Performers. Tim Ferriss, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry I make you read these long subtitles. I just can't stop myself with the long subtitles. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime. Tim, is it true you hold a Guinness Book of World Records in tango? I did. I don't know if it's been beaten, uh, but at one point in time, I did hold the record for most consecutive tango spins in Argentine tango, which was in the Guinness Book of World Records. Now, I need to give equal credit, maybe even more credit to, to the my, woman who was spinning. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> well, I was spinning with her. So the challenge is, is different. The male in this particular case is the center of, let's say, the bicycle wheel, and the woman is moving around the exterior. So the male is more likely to get sick or dizzy because everything is spinning. She has a fixed point of focus, which is the male in the middle. So there are different challenges, but Alicia Monti from Buenos Aires, Capital Federal, she is uh, an incredible dancer. She really uh, deserves the credit for most of that. But yes, it is true. What is the number of consecutive spins? I think it ended up being 32 spins, something like that. And the backstory to that that a lot of people don't know we did that live on uh, Regis and Kelly at the time, and for whatever reason, Kelly kept calling me Ferris, Ferris, Ferris. She didn't, she <laughs> didn't, she, she didn't address me by my first name, so I felt like I was being chastised by my wrestling coach or something. But suffice to say, uh, Alicia had really badly injured her leg before she flew up, and we had not been able to beat it in practice. So she had been fully bandaged up, and then she rose to the challenge, wow. and we pulled it off. Maybe it was the caffeine, who knows, but it uh, it worked. You were born six weeks premature and given a 10% chance of living. So you're a fighter. Yeah, I was in ICU for quite a long period of time. I still have scars on my uh, rib cage where my left lung collapsed, and then on my wrist from the transfusions and oxygenation and whatnot. I understand that when you were born, you suffered from a muscular imbalance of the eyes, and it caused each of your eyes to look in different directions. (laughs) Um, And and I believe that this resulted in the nickname tuna fish. Yeah, my loving mother thought that it resembled a tuna fish. Once I got over being extremely tiny preemie, I got extremely fat. I was just a voracious breastfeeder, apparently. And I got so fat that I couldn't roll myself over. So (laughs) that lent itself also to the tuna fish. So in all of my research on you, the common denominator that I found numerous times was information about your head. So (laughs) in a New Yorker article published in 2011, the writer described you in this way. Ferris, who is 33 years old, is almost impossibly affable with a square jaw, twinkling blue eyes, and a tanned, well-shaped skull that beams through his close cropped fair hair. So I guess your skull wasn't affected by the muscular imbalance. (laughs) No, no. Uh, It's a good thing, too, that my skull lends itself to close cropped hair because I don't have much of a choice these days. (laughs) So I'm really thrilled that that worked out. You grew up in the Tony town of East Hampton on Long Island, New York. Your mother was a physical therapist and your father a real estate agent. Your family still lives in East Hampton, correct? 
They do indeed. You've referred to yourself as a townie. Uh, <laughs> you didn't grow up playing tennis with Steven Spielberg and drinking wine with Jerry Seinfeld. You state that you grew up serving coffee to these people. I did. What was that like for you? Did you have a lot of longing to be different? Uh, not really. It was, there's a lot of friction between the locals and the city people, as they're called, where I grew up. Still called that. And I think part of it's sour grapes and jealousy, just because you have the haves and the have-nots. And uh, they're, despite popular belief, there's still plenty of low-income families on eastern Long Island, including in and around the Hamptons. Serving coffee to people from the city took a lot of forms. It was really like being at the world's premier psychology department in human nature because you saw the best and the worst. You saw, on one hand, let's just say, old, old money, Rockefeller-type old money. They're over the fact that they have money, so they're fine. They're very well-behaved. Tend not even to go out to the restaurant, so you didn't see them much. They're fine. We didn't have any beef with them. Then you have the self-made people. So, for instance, I had a chance. I was very nervous, but I had a chance to serve coffee to Billy Joel, and I ended up doing it a number of times at a place called the Maidstone Arms. And he was great. He had had crappy service jobs before, and he was really nice to everybody. I would serve coffee, and he would tip $20, <laughs> which blew my mind at the time. That was like Fort Knox. But the C and BC and crowd, the folks who maybe go out exclusively for that type of fame seeking, they're the worst. They're just the worst. So you got to see the rudest, most entitled type of behavior as well. Which is why a lot of my friends grew up stealing hood ornaments. <laughs> <laughs> you showed them. Ah, uh, yeah. So now, now I go back though, and I feel like a a daywalker in the sense that I have one foot in both of those worlds, and I have, truthfully told, more in common with a lot of the city people now than I do with a lot of the locals I grew up with. And uh, so I've, I have a different relationship to the city people now than I did then. I think that coming from that type of background and struggling to make something of yourself from essentially nothing is, I think it provides a lot of gratitude when you actually do achieve something. Yeah, and it, it, it also provides, quite frankly, maybe a chip on the shoulder that ends up being very helpful. In what way? Well, if you feel like you have something to prove, which may not be the case if you grew up in different circumstances that sense of dissatisfaction or someday I'll show them, those types of motivators, I think, are very good fuel for the machine. Mm -hmm. There is a point, at least for me, I think there has come a point where that becomes counterproductive. You realize, What is that point? Where, where is that tipping point where it becomes counterproductive? For me, it was realizing that achievement without appreciation or gratitude is really a, it's a pyrrhic victory. You aren't ever going to be happy with what you get if you can't be happy with what you have. And therefore, having a chip on your shoulder, it actually inhibits that ability, in my experience. So in the last four or five years in particular, I've focused on trying to develop more than just my, my goal-seeking and achieving apparatus uh, that you mentioned early on, which is this portfolio of techniques and habits and routines and so on, which are all focused on define objective, achieve objective. And there's some shared ground, but not a whole lot. Uh, so I've, I've, I've shifted gears to try to take care of the other half of the equation a lot more in the last few years. I'm going to ask you quite a lot about that um, because I also feel that it's something that I need to learn. Um, but you applied to and got accepted to Princeton despite having SAT scores that were 40% lower than the average applicant. How did yeah, you get in? I was not good. How did not, you get in? I was not good at standardized testing. Uh, I had very good grades. The perfectionist in me actually led to never finishing the SATs. I got stuck on problems and I just couldn't let them go, oh. which <laughs> you could psychoanalyze and expand to a lot of things in my life. But my grades were very good. And I've always tried to, and this started pretty early, focus on one or two strengths as opposed to trying to fix all of my weaknesses. And a cheat in many types of competitions or in this case admissions processes is just being as different as possible mm -hmm. if you can't beat them at the game that is standardized testing be as different as possible so be memorable <laughs> yeah yeah exactly like so i thought to myself what is an essay that would stop 
an admissions officer who's reading applications to stop and go, oh my God, guys, you got to hear this one. This is hilarious. That was my litmus test for the essays. So that is where I tried to shine. What was the subject of your essays? Well, all right. So the essay was about my first trip abroad. I'd never really spent extended time outside the U.S. I transferred from at the recommendation of a number of my teachers in East Hampton. So the schooling at the time was not good at all in the Hamptons. They recommended that I transfer to a better school and ended up applying to a place called St. Paul's in New Hampshire, which is a boarding school. I was accepted. And when I went to St. Paul's, I had always assumed I was bad at languages. And a few of my new friends were taking Japanese, which was never an option before, instead of Spanish. And I said, well, I've already sort of swung and struck out with Spanish. So if I'm going to be bad at something that's required, I might as well do it with my friends. So I took the Japanese class and had a spectacular teacher named Mr. Shimano, who was hilarious. When we got demoralized, for instance, uh, and we were really frustrated with not making progress, he would stop the class and practice saying squirrel for us, which for a Japanese person with a hard accent is next to impossible to say. It's just like, skrr, skrr, and everyone would crack up and it would defuse everything and then we could continue. But long story short, he, he asked me if I would consider doing an exchange program with a school called Seike in Tokyo, which they had a longstanding relationship with. And I did it. So my first overseas experience was going to Japan for a year as the sole uh, sort of Where's Waldo white American head in a school of 5,000 Japanese students. Uniforms, all classes in Japanese. And uh, at one point, my host mother took me with the family to a sumo bay, so a sumo stable. It's very uncommon, at least at the time, this was 92, to have that type of opportunity. They're very strict, extremely traditional, and I was able to sit there and watch this entire practice. And the story was about how my mother, my host mother, left to go hang out with the mother of the house, the stable, the, the wife of the coach. My host father had done this many times before and was a chain smoker, and he got fed up with sitting with his legs crossed and having his back hurt. So he split and went outside to smoke cigarettes. So I was left by myself watching this thing. And the coach turned around and he said, Oi, omae, yate miruka? Which basically says, like, I don't know if I can curse on this podcast. Yeah, but absolutely. Yeah, so omai is a form of you. There are many ways to say you in Japanese. Omai is like, hey, fuckface. Do you want to, <laughs> like, not in a mean way, but like in an old salty dog way, like, hey, fuckface, do you want to try this? And he was totally serious. It wasn't mean. And I was like, ah, uh, ah, uh, okay. Didn't know what to do. And so I was taken to the back, stripped naked, had these guys put me in a canvas diaper, effectively, and then throw me out onto the dirt and just... Got my my ass handed to me for an hour, but it was great. It was really awesome. And at one point, things chilled out and everyone was laughing like after the practice ended. And the routine is they feed while the the younger students will generally prepare this. They all live on the premises, something called chanko nabe, which is the stew for all the all the wrestlers. And the guests get to eat first. But before that, uh, we had an arm wrestling competition. And so the essay culminated in the arm wrestling competition after this whole experience. That was the essay. Wonderful. (laughs) Um, Now, I read that when you were in college, there was a nanosecond where you thought you might be an illustrator. Yeah, there was. Actually, I I wanted to be a comic book penciler for a long time. So I started off wanting to be a marine biologist and then spent probably 10 years working on penciling and illustration. Uh, So I paid some of my bills and some of my way at Princeton as an illustrator. I, I, I did uh, books for the university. I also did, uh, I was the graphics editor for a satire magazine, sort of the equivalent, so Princeton Tiger, which is a semi-equivalent of the Harvard Lampoon. And it was a possibility. I just ended up zigging in a different direction. But yeah, oh yeah, no, illustration was was a huge, and art was a big, big part of my upbringing and my, my being at that point. The other way I made money was as a bouncer, which was terrible. Well, you stopped doing that, I believe, when <clears throat> your friend got really hurt, right? This is what scared me. So my friend, <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not making this up, he was a graduate student in physics at Princeton. Smart guy from the former Soviet Union. He was also a former middleweight amateur boxing champion from the Soviet Union. That is about as big as it gets. If, if, if you have that to your name, 
you are effectively a professional boxer. And he had his head kicked in by a bunch of visiting throwers because he was attacked by five drunk guys who were 200 plus pounds. And it doesn't matter how good you are at boxing when you get attacked by five guys. And he had his head kicked in. He was in the hospital. And that scared me. So I stopped at that point. It just wasn't worth it. You first studied neuroscience and then switched your major to East Asian studies. Yeah. Um, what did you think you wanted to do for a living at that point? I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea. I yeah. really, in school, and I still have this opinion that a liberal arts education is intended to make you a well-rounded human being, not to prepare you for a specific trade. So I really just followed my interest. The neuroscience stemmed from the fact that I have Alzheimer's and Parkinson's on both sides of my family. So I wanted to try to figure out ways to mitigate that, to decrease the likelihood of suffering that myself, because I watched my grandmother descend into effectively madness, which was terrifying to me. Have you done 23andMe? Oh, yeah. I've done so many tests. I've had my entire genome sequenced. I've done lots and lots of tests. Uh, so I'm predisposed genetically. The neuroscience ended when I realized that I just couldn't personally do the animal testing required to be part of the lab that I wanted to be part of. And I do think that certain types of animal testing are important, in fact, but I just couldn't personally do it. <laughs> so uh, my other interest, aside from preventing the neurodegenerative disease, was learning, accelerated learning, language acquisition, which I'd become really fascinated by. So I figured, well, you know what, if I'm going to have to pick another game to play, let me go to East Asian studies because I already have the Japanese. So let me try Chinese, which grammatically is completely dissimilar, but the orthography, the writing system is extremely similar. And uh, that is how that started. Now, when you were in college, I understand that you used all the money that you'd saved from three summer jobs to manufacture an audio book called <laughs> How I Beat the Ivy League. Oh, the shame, the shame, yes. <laughs> you manufactured 500, you sold mm. zero, not yeah, one. What yeah. happened? How could you not have sold I'm one? such a mess. Well, so I actually sold one, and I found out it was my mom who bought it. <laughs> the fact is that I created a product in a vacuum and then tried to find a market. And I think the opposite is, generally speaking, much more effective. You identify the market that you understand have access to, can reach affordably, and then you design a product for that market. That is a much saner way and safer way to go about it. Do not do 500 of anything before you've tested it. You had a lot of confidence. I did. I did. That was uninformed confidence. <laughs> Good to have informed confidence. I was listening to your podcast with Tony Robbins, who I love mm. as well. And he asked you a really interesting question. I'd like to talk about a bit. You were talking about how what controls our life is our model of the world. And he asked you, who did you have to be for your parents? He asked you who you had to be for your mother when you were growing up, and you stated that you didn't feel like you had to be anything, that marching to your own drummer was perfectly acceptable, wherever you ended up was fine for her. Do you think that might be the source of your confidence? I think it's definitely part of it, for sure. My parents never pushed us in any direction or any career or anything. They encouraged us, and they wanted us to try very hard at whatever we did. But they didn't pressure us, for instance, to take piano lessons, or they didn't really have the money for that. I did take some lessons with a family friend at one point because I wanted to try it. They didn't push us to, say, recite something and count to 10 in French for dinner guests or anything like that. My mom, in particular, would expose me to many different things that didn't cost anything. We, she would take me to the beach, and we'd collect black sand with magnets. She'd take me and my brother to, say, a pier the day after we had chicken legs for dinner. We ate a lot of chicken legs. Tie a piece of twine around it and drop it off the side and pull it up and look at the crabs. And in this way, exposed us to many, many different things. And then if we latched onto something, if we gravitated towards something, they would pull their support behind it. And... They also did something which was partially by necessity, but I think it was partially by design, and that is they didn't have much money. My parents probably never made more than 50 grand a year combined on average. However, uh, they said there's always a budget for books. If you want a book, there's, we will find a budget for books. So every once in a while, and we did this on a somewhat regular basis, be like, do you guys want to get a book? And we were very excited because that was our only option on the table. And we became enamored of 
books and we would go to the bookstore bookhampton and so we'd find the books that were discounted and that's where i found fishes of the world which i still have when i was about god knows how old second grade or so third grade and that was the book that made me want to be a marine biologist so i absolutely think that the confidence to explore not confidence in all things, but the confidence to explore and try different things comes a lot, uh, certainly from the upbringing. You said that the acute fear of becoming an investment banker drove <laughs> you to commit academic suicide, and for a time you quit Princeton. What were you so afraid of? What was what was wrong in your mind about becoming an investment banker? Yeah, so there's more to that story, um, which I actually, in Tools of Titans, I write a chapter about it because I felt like I needed to address it. But there were a number of factors, a number of, I should say, incidents that took place around the same period of time. One was not making it to the final round of interviews for the Goldman Sachs and McKinsey's and so on, which were recruiting at Princeton. And it's pretty much it. There, there aren't many companies that recruit at Princeton, or I should say many industries. And it was the first time in a binary way that I'd failed so clearly, which really affected me and threw me off. I became a bit insecure. I was in a relationship at the time, became kind of needy. And my girlfriend at the time was a varsity athlete and my like late night worrying and long talking were messing up her final season. So she exited stage left and that was kind of strike number two. Strike number three was that my senior thesis advisor at the 11th hour said, here's a stack of research I'd like for you to incorporate into your thesis. And it was a big stack. It was like 50, 60 pages of original Japanese research in Japanese. My Japanese is pretty good, but that's highly specialized. And I took it home and I tried to digest it for two or three days and I realized there was no way I was going to finish my thesis by graduation. And the thesis in that department and others is 25% of your entire departmental GPA. Hugely heavily weighted, right? And, uh, I ended up getting a job offer from the head of curriculum design. And he said, well, it's too bad that you're graduating when you are because we have the job available now. And that was at Berlitz? Berlitz. Yeah. So I decided to take a year off. And the thesis advisor became enraged in part because I think he was expecting me to do some heavy lifting with translation. His English was not super hot. And he said, you're just going to cop out. And I'm paraphrasing here, but you're just going to leave. And he was really, really upset. And he said, well this better be the best thesis I've ever seen. And the gist was, I'm going to tank your thesis if you take a year off because you're just skipping out on this research, which is, <laughs> time is that, set, time that's, that's unethical. It's completely unethical. And the response when I went to people inside the department, I talked to people outside the department, the collective response was he wouldn't do that. So it became a, a, a he said, he said <laughs> situation and I lost. And... I decided nonetheless to take a year off because I wasn't going to finish the thesis at all if I didn't take it. And that precipitated, particularly when Berlitz decided that I would work remotely, so I wasn't going to actually be around other people. I ended up in an off-campus apartment where my two friends who had just graduated were working nine to five, looking at hundreds of pages of undone homework on the floor every morning and getting nowhere. So I was at a Barnes & Noble just trying to clear my head walking around and there was a book about suicide. It was actually a Kevorkian related descriptive, I'm not going to say how to, but close to it, book about suicide. And I thought, well, if I'm waiting for a miracle to save me, maybe this is the miracle. And I actually scripted out the whole thing. I went and I read every book I could find in the Barnes and Noble. I went to Firestone Library in Princeton. I reserved a book that I couldn't find that I thought would be particularly helpful for planning. Like I'd already decided. And I'd forgotten that my mailing address was not changed at the registrar. My mail wasn't going to come to my apartment. It accidentally went to my parents. So they got a letter, which was, hey, Tim Ferriss, good news. Your book on how to kill yourself just came in. And I got this very anxious, worried call from my mother, you can imagine. And that shocked me out of my delusion, these ridiculous narratives that had spun out of control. So by sheer chance, I am sitting here still today and... When I wrote The 4-Hour Workweek, I was not prepared to talk about that type of stuff publicly. But I had an experience where I went to a live podcast recording, not mine. This was before I had my podcast with Jason Calacanis, who's an investor. And um, this young man came up to me afterwards. I was signing books for people and so on. 
And he said, could you sign this for my brother? I said, sure. What's his name? Give me his name. I was like, all right, what would you like me to write? And he blanked. He was just staring at me and he froze for a bit. His eyes kind of fluttered and something was off, but I wanted to throw him a lifeline. So I said, how about this? I'll just figure out what to write. You want me to just come up with something? He's like, great, no problem. So I gave it back to him and let's call him Silas. And things move on. It's time for me to leave. And Silas approaches me. So he waited like two hours to talk to me afterwards. And um, he said, can I talk to you? Sure. Walk with me. So we're walking towards the elevators. And he said, sorry, I blanked. That was for my younger brother. He's 22. He actually killed himself a few weeks ago. He used to listen to you and Joe Rogan, who's another podcaster. And I think you guys kept him around a lot longer than would have been the case otherwise. And uh, the book was going to be put in his room, which was untouched since the, the incident. And he said to me, have you ever thought about, or asked me, have you ever thought about writing about depression and suicide because you might be able to save someone? People listen to you. And I thought to myself, wow, Tim Ferriss, you are a fucking coward because some of your best friends in high school killed themselves. Some of your best friends in college killed themselves. You almost killed yourself. Some of your friends after college killed themselves. This is the pink elephant in the room. And for that reason, I decided, and it took months for me to write, very hard for me to put together this chapter in uh, the new book. Thank you, Tim. And we're really glad you're here. In 2000, after you witnessed a friend get rich in technology, you decided oh, yes. to move to California. I and did. it took you three months to find employment. And, and you did find employment. You ended up getting fired from the particular job <laughs> that you got. Um, and then... I guess it was pretty dark. It, you used your own money, $5,000 from a credit card, and started your sports nutrition company selling a supplement called Brain Quicken. <laughs> I did indeed. Um, so tell us about Brain Quicken. <laughs> All right. So Brain Quicken, I actually went to my own credit card statement and asked myself, where am I weirdly price insensitive? So how am I scratching my own itch in a weirdly price insensitive way? And... It was sports nutrition because I was a competitive athlete and I was making $40,000 a year pre-tax in the Bay Area, which does not go very far. And rent was out of control then as it is now. But I was spending, I want to say, four dollars to $500 a month on sports nutrition and all of my friends were in the same boat, the guys that I knew. So I decided that maybe, just maybe, I could prototype what I used to make for myself when I was at Princeton. So when I was doing my neuroscience stuff, I would import all sorts of wacky drugs from Europe under this FDA personal importation policy. I would get all sorts of ingredients <laughs> from supplement stores, pharmacies, and so on, and I would concoct my own smart drugs. This was one of my hobbies. And I'll give you an example. There's something called vasopressin. And it's often sold as desmopressin. It's most frequently thought of as an anti-diuretic hormone. So if, if you're a kid in the U.S. and you're wetting your bed at an age that is unacceptable, 10, whatever it might be, you snort this anti-diuretic hormone and you hold your urine for the night. Well, it also has a bunch of impact on short-term memory. So if you've ever had way, way, way too much to drink and you're at a party and then suddenly you time travel and you're at Denny's or something like that <laughs> and you can't remember what happened, it's in part because alcohol affects vasopressin and it then inhibits your short-term memory. So what if you actually did the opposite of blacking out when you're drinking and you used it for studying? Well, it turned out I could go to say my Chinese class and for a Chinese character quiz, I could take two hits of this desmopressin, flip through the pages and score 90% of my tests. That is not something I recommend doing long-term at all. But I made this cocktail that really, really worked well. So I thought to myself, if I could create this and sell it for the exact application that I used it, hire some, say, regulatory affairs consultants and biochemists to make sure I'm doing it correctly. And of course, I'm not going to make it myself. I would have to contract manufacturing. What might that look like? So before I got fired, I would make phone calls after work trying to get any information about how this industry worked. And calling after hours, I figured out, is the best way to get a hold of presidents and CEOs yeah, and so you on. Yeah, talk because, about how yeah, all the, all the calling. Yeah, yeah, all the gatekeepers are gone. Yep. And... Um, before the company went under, I said, hey, guys, to my close friends at the company, I'm thinking of doing this. 
can I guilt you into pre-ordering one? <laughs> because I don't have enough money to do the first manufacturing run. They, they were very nice, and they agreed to do it. Ultimately, got the first tiny batch done, and it took off from there. So I ended up having distribution in about 12 countries, and much, much later, sold it in 2009. And... In this time, you began to seed the themes for the four-hour work week. In 2004, yes. In 2004, I would say, so about four, three to four years after I started that company is when my girlfriend at the time, we'd see a theme here, my girlfriend at the time, I thought I was going to propose to her. Now, because I had all these retailers in different countries, Asia, Hawaii, you name it, I worked all day long. I woke up six or seven, and I stopped working nine or 10 or 11. So she saw me not at all. And one day she very fairly announced, I'm out of here. This is ridiculous. I'm not enjoying this. I'm not happy. And she gave me this. Uh, let me try to explain this. So her Dear John letter was awesome. I still have it. I still I should take a photo of it. Her name's on it. I have to blur it out. But <laughs> if you've ever been to, say, Target, and they have those fold-out three-frame photograph holders. So she made this construction paper collage. It was actually really well done with a photograph of my head pasted at the top of me running with a suit on with a briefcase with all these pages flying out. And then on the right hand side, it said work ends or business ends at 5 p.m. And she gave it to me and she said, you should keep this just for your health. And I was like, wow, you put a lot of effort into this. <laughs> Good God. And uh, I was just blindsided. I was really caught off guard. And I realized after that that I really wasn't happy. I was not enjoying things. I felt like I'd created a monster that I had to keep feeding, a prison of my own making. And unlike a job, I didn't know how to quit. How would I quit? And so I, I took a four-week trip. I took a, a one-way ticket four-week planned trip to the UK where I stayed with a friend of mine who I met in college to get away from my routine and think about how to either remove myself as a bottleneck or shut down the business. So redesign stuff, reorganize everything or shut it down. And the early experiments ended up working. So I extended my travel for a year and a half. I just didn't stop. I just kept on going to a new place, no schedule, no itinerary. And a lot of those experiments coupled with the fact that I was invited to come back to Princeton and guest lecture twice a year. And in those lectures, I tested a lot of the concepts and the explanations for what ended up forming the four-hour work week. Now, when you were traveling and then came back, you said that that experience methodically destroyed all of your assumptions about what can and cannot be done. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you also said that being financially rich and having the ability to live like a millionaire are fundamentally two very different things. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? You were making money. You were, I think, making $40,000 a month when you were yeah. making $40,000 a year in your Prior, previous job. Right. Um, but suddenly you, you go to Europe, you sort of have a nervous breakdown, you then mm -hmm. decide to continue traveling. How did this shift occur? In thinking about it afterwards, I realized a few things. Number one, we think of money as the currency. Those are the points on the scoreboard. But there are a few conditions that make money valuable or not as valuable, the utility of money. And those are other currencies like time, mobility, the number of W's you control in your life, the with whom, the where, the what, the why. I mean, all of these usual interrogatives for journalism apply to as sort of lifestyle multipliers for each dollar that you make. And when people want to say, be a millionaire. The fantasy is not having a million dollars in the bank because that's just a resource you can access. It's the, the dream of complete freedom that is associated with that money. But if you're working all day or if you don't have, say, the time or mobility or you can't decide who you work with or the types of projects you work on but you are financially rich, that does not mean that your life will feel rich. There's a big difference between, for instance, looking to the outside world like you were successful and feeling successful. The shift really took place when I realized that you can maximize time and mobility and make, say, half as much as someone else or one-tenth as much and have a much higher quality of life. Hence the term that I ended up using in the book, which was lifestyle design. So instead of traditional career planning where you redeem all of this sort of in a slave-save 
retire paradigm. You redeem all of this hard, but maybe not enjoyable work at a point called retirement, uh, which is far from guaranteed, certainly, that you'll even get to that point. You distribute throughout life these mini retirements, and you architect things and negotiate things in such a way that you have, first and foremost, the maximum amount of control over time, which is the most non-renewable. Money you can lose and make back. Time, haven't quite figured that out. So that, that was, I think, the shift. And I was very fortunate when I was traveling to bump into uh, more than a few people who were trying to figure this out. You know, they had chased the American dream in their head, whatever that looked like, and found themselves just bewildered and looking around for answers when they arrived at this so-called pot of gold on the rainbow. And they're like, wait a second, I've just traded up in my problems. Well, I, it's also <laughs> this representation of something that you think will give you something that that requires. Exactly. And so if you're looking at having a million dollars in the bank being something that is going to allow you to feel free, right? you are now saying, no, that didn't work that way. I've always been of the mindset that if I had enough money, mm -hmm. I would be secure. Sure. I would feel secure. I would yeah. feel safe. So I remember my first year out of college, I was dirt poor. I was living hand to mouth and had to decide every month what was I going to pay, my rent, my student loan, or eat. And I used to fantasize about having money in the bank. Like, I would feel so secure. I would feel so safe if I had $1,000 in the bank. And this was 1983 when that probably would have been about 10000 now. Yeah. And I scrimped and I saved and I scrimped and I saved and I took on an extra job and I ended up after, I don't know, two, three years out of school, I had $1,000 in the bank. And then I was like, well, maybe I really need 2000 because <laughs> I don't feel safe. Yeah. And then it became this hedonistic treadmill of, okay, I'm going to be a squirrel and save every penny I make in the hopes that one day... I will feel safe. Well, here it is 33 years later, <laughs> and I still don't feel safe. Yeah. So I think it, it's when we use these other things as representations of what we could have if we achieve it, we realize if we ever do achieve it or on the path to achieving, you then just up the ante. Yeah. Yeah. It's a moving target. And uh, there are prescriptions that work to counteract that. Uh, for instance, when I traveled for my year and a half, I had next to nothing, very few things that I traveled with, but I carried two books. One was Vagabonding by Rolf Potts, which is really a f philosophical, practical philosophical read more than anything else. It's not just about travel. And then Walden by Thoreau. Now, a third joined the ranks a while later, which was Letters from a Stoic by Seneca. Now, that's the Penguin rebranding. I believe it's Penguin of the moral letters to Lucilius, which are available in public domain by Seneca the Younger. And the Stoicism since that point to today has remained my default operating system for practicing poverty, rehearsing the worst case scenarios, and ultimately making myself, to the extent possible, as a flawed human, less prone to emotional overreacting or fear-based decisions. And I think it is extremely practical. And uh, people tend to lean towards one stoic thinker or another once they've sampled Seneca because the writing is partially hilarious and also very well done. I, I enjoy the prose. I just, I, I really enjoy Seneca. Some people lean to Marcus Aurelius, other people to Epictetus. But that was and continues to be extremely helpful uh, as a reminder that nature provides enough for anyone's needs, but not enough for all of their greed. And that is absolutely stealing some type of quote from Seneca, I guarantee you, because well, he was the master of the fortune cookie one-liners. You included a quote in the 4-Hour Workweek, which I know moved you, and I loved it, and I wanted to read it to you and maybe chat about it briefly. He writes, set aside a certain number of days during which you shall be content with the scantiest and cheapest fare with coarse and rough dress, saying to yourself the while, is this the condition that I feared? Oh, yeah. That is, for me, just the cornerstone 
right there. Just putting yourself right into facing everything that you feel. Yes, and not in an abstract fashion. So that particular paragraph is something that I actually implement on a monthly and quarterly basis. And that takes a couple of forms. I fast for three consecutive days every month, five to 10 days, at least once a year, generally more. And that means no food whatsoever, just water. And by the way, don't do that without medical supervision. I will also at points take a week or so to subsist on nothing but say oatmeal or rice and beans. Why those particular ingredients? They're cheap and they're bland. You're looking at less than $5 a day, probably less than $2 a day in terms of food, water only. And Are you I, fasting for health reasons or for psychological reasons or both? Uh, both. Both. And uh, But I will also, for instance, I won't dress in a burlap sack or anything that rough, but I'll wear the same, say, white Hanes t-shirt, cheap t-shirt, same pair of jeans for a week straight. And uh, in some instances, and this is something that a number of people in the new book do in their various ways, I will, say, sleep in a sleeping bag in my own house on the floor and do that for a week. All the while asking yourself, is this the condition that I so feared? And th there's this very odd phenomenon that I have observed in myself and with other people who've tried this. You would expect that to be potentially a miserable experience. A lot of folks come out of it feeling happier and more content than they did when they went into it. And uh, when you have the realization that very little is required not just to sustain you, but really to provide you with just about everything that you need. You are liberated in a way that's hard to describe. And you are able to realistically assess and dissect many of your fears for what they are, which is unfounded. And I define risk in a very particular way. It is the potential of an irreversible negative outcome. And when you start to view your decisions through that lens and you've already survived, maybe even thrived on 2 to $5 a day in hard costs, if you lose it all, what does that really mean? And of course, you're going to mitigate that risk, but you're emboldened to do things that many other people might never attempt because you have conditioned yourself against fear. You, you have inoculated yourself against turns of fate for the worse by practicing poverty, by practicing your worst case scenario. Isn't it also a way to both experience more empathy as well as more gratitude? Oh, for sure. For sure. And there are many things that can serve that purpose. I mean, I don't know if you want to go down this rabbit hole, but uh, I think that judicious and supervised use of psychedelics can also serve this purpose. You're investing in this now, aren't uh, you? Well, I effectively stopped all of my startup investing roughly two years ago for a whole host of reasons, took an indefinite vacation from that, and redirected my funds and efforts towards not investing in because I'm not getting a, a financial ROI, but supporting scientific research at places like Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, uh, UCSF as well. And there was actually just, uh, well, piece in the New York Times that came out, the use of psilocybin in attenuating and reducing the end-of-life anxiety or anxiety in general and depression in cancer patients. And uh, I think the line that stuck with me was 80% six months later, from a single dose. Still feel the effect? Still felt the effect. Isn't that amazing? It's incredible. So uh, this is an area that I've gone very, 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 very deep with. <laughs> and the reason I, I bring it up, because you mentioned empathy, and I had Sam Harris, uh, who's a PhD in neuroscience, and uh, one of the smartest humans I know on the podcast. And he is, I wouldn't say a proponent of psychedelics, but he credits psychedelics with opening his mind to possibilities that he didn't know existed prior, which led to a consistent meditation practice. He no longer uses psychedelics. But he also pointed out that if you have what people might consider a bad trip, if it's in a safe environment, by the way, I don't consider any such thing a bad trip. You're facing fear, right? Right. And when you go to the brink, when you have your ego completely cleave from you and you're strapped to the front of the icebreaker, you know on some level what insanity and mental illness feels like. And so you come out of that and you see someone talking to yourselves and you're, you're much less likely to scoff and completely dismiss. You're like, okay, I was a hair's breadth from being in that situation myself. I just happened to come back. 
Right. Uh, so I think that's also um, one of the tools in the toolkit for developing much, much more empathy. In your TED Talk, you stated that if you have an art, it's deconstructing things that really scare the living hell out of you. (laughs) And in an interview with James Tardy, you stated that people think of you as a risk taker, but you actually don't think you're much of a risk taker. Um, What do you see as the difference between doing things that scare you and taking risks? So taking risks, I think, if we use the definition that I mentioned, the probability of an irreversible negative outcome, can be assessed pretty objectively. So there's an exercise that I do. Goal setting, all the rage, right? Everyone's familiar with goal setting. Well, it's very hard to achieve goals if you have the emergency brake on, and the emergency brake is fear. Because as Derek Sivers, who's the founder of CD Baby, fascinating sort of philosophical musician, weirdo, awesome guy, uh, and I say that with the, the highest level of compliment. Um, well, I view him as one of my mentors. He, he said something once, which I thought was really fantastic. If more information were the answer, we'd all be billionaires with six-pack abs. It's not more information. So what's holding us back? If the instructions are out there for everything that we want, what, why, why don't we have what we want? And it's because we have this thing called fear. And the way that you disarm fear, the way that you defeat that opponent, is in my case, I do something called fear setting. It's very simple. I'll take an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper and I will divide it into three vertical columns. And then at the top, I will take whatever I am postponing. Generally, what I'm afraid of is something I've thought about a lot, but I've put off. Whatever it is. So what is it? Is it breaking up with someone? Is it trying to get together with someone? Is it starting my own company, quitting a job? Whatever it might be. Put it at the top. In the left-hand column, it's all of the worst things that could possibly happen. <laughs> so you, in detail, that's the key point. So I will end up as a bag lady in 24th Street living Ex- out of a garbage bag. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Something okay, like that. So that's bullet one. And then you, you, you put together 20 of those or whatever it is. Second column is, for each of those bullets, what could you do that would minimize the likelihood of that particular thing happening? All right. So how would you risk mitigate? Right? Last column is, if if one of those happened, if each of those happened... What could you possibly do if you had to, to get back to where you are now? And when you do that type of dissection on fear, it's like seeing the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. You're like, well, wait a second here. This is ridiculous. If I try this, and this is almost always the case, maybe I'm risking on a zero to 10 scale, a two to four of transient discomfort. And if it all goes sideways, I could reverse it. But if it goes well, what I'm trying to do, I might be looking at an eight, nine, or 10 of permanent upside. Well, that's an easy bet, right? If if we had a six-sided die right here, and I said, all right, if we roll one to five, I give you a dollar. If we roll six, you give me a dollar. You'd play that game all day long. And the fear-setting exercise, which is really easy to do, is how you subjectively and somewhat objectively address fear. Fear is is usually more illusory than it is real. The power that it has is in its often amorphous nature when people don't define it. I also think that we tend to be afraid of things we're not sure we could be relied upon in. So do you rely on yourself? Can you rely on yourself? And if you don't feel like you can rely on yourself, you're always afraid of things happening that could tilt you over. Sure. But if you have a somewhat sturdy foundation of feeling like you can rely on yourself, you probably don't feel as nervous. Sure. And I think that part of the reason some people see me as a risk taker is because I have high pain tolerance. And I've developed a high level of comfort with discomfort. And uh, this is a learnable skill. The stoicism helps. The fear rehearsal helps. The coarse dress and cheap food, all of that helps. Well, so is being physically fit. Absolutely. So the physical fitness piece is huge. And subjecting yourself to pain that makes you stronger, realizing that not all stress is bad. Yeah. I also think that fear tends to designate as something that's important to you. You're not going to be afraid of something unless you are seeing it as something threatening. Yeah. Yeah. Or impactful, for sure. Right. 
Right. This is your fourth book, your first book, The Four-Hour Workweek. Here's some interesting stats. You were turned down by 26 publishers before you were able to get The Four-Hour Workweek published. It has since become a New York Times bestseller, number one New York Times bestseller, and number one Wall Street Journal bestseller. It's been published in over 35 languages. It sold millions and millions of copies. In 2014, you started your incredible podcast, The Tim Ferriss Show, which has now reached its 100 millionth download, which as somebody that does podcasting, I can tell you that's a gigantic number. It's an amazing number. And now you are this week publishing your brand new book, which is titled Tools of Titans. And it consists of tactics and routines of some of the most popular guests that you've had on your two plus years now of podcasting. What made you decide to do the book? Uh, okay. I'm laughing because the last thing I wanted to do after my third book, The Four Hour Chef, was write a book. I was just, I was burned out. I didn't. You took a little bit of time. Yeah, I just didn't. I was done. I was like, you know what? I'm done with books. Too much work, too much headache. They I, are a lot of work. I find writing, uh, generally speaking, pretty torturous. I'm, I'm very happy to have written <laughs> sometimes, but I find the process very, very, very slow and hard. This book happened by accident in a way because I had set aside the entire month of July to do a few things. Number one, I was taking my parents to Paris because life is short. I'd never spent any real time there. My dad hadn't been there since the 60s. My mom had never been. And I stopped everything except for reviewing my notes. So this meant 10,000 plus pages of transcripts, all of my handwritten notes, all of the new stuff that I'd learned from past guests because many of them have become friends, as you know. And you could say, if you want to dress it up, that I have hypergraphia. I have hundreds of notebooks. And I love referring back to these notebooks. And I have them indexed very carefully. And yes, it's a little OCD, but it works for me. And I just love notebooks as quick references. So I wanted to create, for me, the notebook to end all notebooks. So July was to go through all of these notes to select my favorite recommendations, tools, books, documentaries, anything that I saw as a pattern across these 200 plus guests. So that whether I had a really tough challenge, some type of insecurity, some grand ambition, some type of business issue, investment, quandary, whatever it would happen to be, I would have a quick reference cheat sheet effectively. And I started putting this together. I had no book deal, nothing. Wasn't talking to publishers. And I was putting it together and I got about... I don't know why I can't write short books. I don't know what it is. <laughs> your book is about five inches it's thick. It's gigantic. And it's intended to be a choose-your-own-adventure type of, of guide. It's uh, some, a buffet you choose from. It's not an A to Z type of thing. But this is the first book that I've enjoyed putting together. It's a fun book to go through because you don't have to read it in any particular order. Yeah. There are different sections, one about healthy, one about wealthy, one about wise. And they feature some of the most extraordinary thinkers that you've, people that you have interviewed and they allow you to take in the information very quickly. There's also some visuals, really interesting visuals. It's beautifully designed, and you're enlivened by it. Yeah. It, you, you you enter into the book, and it sort of transports you spiritually, and, and that sounds kind of corny, but it, it really is true. I appreciate that. I mean, it was a journey for myself, and as someone who is really anal attentive and methodical and loves his graphs and SWOT analysis and his pro and cons and his fear setting and all this. I use all of these different structures and lists and calendars to keep my life organized. I want to learn how to floss? Okay, here's my 10-point checklist. Oh, I didn't know that you. the best way to cut a cake is with floss. Yeah. I learned that from the book. Yeah, this is, yeah, exactly. (laughs) You can cut a cake perfectly with floss. You basically stretch it out across uh, the uh, the diameter, and then you just plop it down with both hands, and then you rotate, and you do the same thing until you have perfect slices. It's amazing. You have a chapter titled, How to Say No When It Matters mm-hmm. Most. Yes. And I have a real problem with that. I'm the girl that can't say no. Uh, we all have a problem with that. And, Most people do. And I think it's because you're afraid, or at least in my case, I'm not going to talk for everybody else in the world, it's essentially because... 
I'm afraid that if I say no, then I might not get that op- another opportunity like that again. Yeah. So even though I might have 400 things that I'm already doing, this is it's really interesting. I was talking to a woman who was the general manager of Puma, and um, she ended up quitting as general manager and, and opening up her own specialty food store in Boston. And I said, how did you do it? And she said, Debbie, I had to let go of the trapeze. And all of a sudden I had this visual of myself with my arms hooked around like 17 trapeze, unable to let go of any of them. And so I was particularly interested in the chapter, how to say no when it matters most. What tips can you give people that are afraid to say no? This particular chapter uses the context of my decision to stop investing in early tech companies, which has been the golden goose for me. I mean, it's certainly the the largest financial piece of my career, as it were, my hodgepodge career. And uh, to stop doing that seemed like a weirdly suicidal <laughs> move. And uh, I was counseled by many people that uh, if I wanted to maintain my relationships and so on, like you have to play the game. No, you have to go to the coffee dates. No, you have to do this. And there is so much FOMO, fear of missing out in Silicon Valley. You find it just about everywhere that I was constantly in a state of low grade anxiety. And I felt like my life was being run by cortisol. I was being very reactive. And, uh, I asked myself, how replaceable am I doing what I'm doing right now related to the investing. And the answer is very. It's a long line of people who can who can do this job. There's a surplus of capital. But where I felt like I could make the greatest impact, leave the po- most positive dent in the world was with the writing. And this was after some conversations with friends of mine. So there's that question. Are you really capitalizing on your unique strengths, whatever those might be? Or are you just a replaceable piece? And unfortunately, a lot of people settle for the replaceable piece. And I had somewhat done that in the investing world and decided not to. There was also a bit of a shitter get off the pot moment in the sense that I had reached a point where I either had to realize that investing needed to be a full-time gig or stop doing it completely. And the middle ground was very, very dangerous. Uh, And so another question for people is... Where can you moderate and where are you binary? This is a question I ask myself. So, for instance, I'll give you an example of where I'm binary. If I have a bowl of chocolate-covered cashews next to my computer and I'm snacking on those, I will eat 5,000 calories. There's no off switch. I'm not going to have three and then push it away. Not going to happen. And uh, with startups, it turns out a lot of people will say, and this can apply to many, 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 many different things, okay, I need to dial back. I'm really stressed out. I'm only going to do three deals a month. I'm only going to do three deals a quarter, whatever it might be. And this has never worked for anyone I've seen try it. And I tried it and failed as well. Because once you start looking at a handful of deals, you feel obligated to compare them to all the other deals coming in. And you end up doing the same vetting that you would do if you were doing it full-time. So it doesn't work. So where can you handle moderation? And where are you binary? And uh, there are ways to do this diplomatically. So I remember uh, at one point I got a response from a very successful entrepreneur, and I asked him uh, if we could catch up. And I was specific. I don't. I didn't give him the the vague like, "Hey, can I pick your brain over coffee?" And I was very specific. Like, hey, I'd love to ask you about this, this, and this. You want to grab a coffee? And he said, "Ah, oh, I'd love to, but I'm on a no meeting, no phone call diet." And I thought, <laughs> I thought to myself, "That's a weird way to put it," but I get it. And he said, just send me your questions via email. Happy to answer them. But he's like, I'm over-calendared. I'm just taking a complete break from meetings. And I thought to myself, well, that's, that's an interesting way to put it. So I started using that in emails. I was like, hey, would love to, but I'm taking a complete break. I'm on a no fill-in-the-blank diet. Awesome. And the way that you can explain that is I need to be really careful with guilt because it's a powerful emotion for me. And if I say yes to one person, I feel obligated to say yes to 100. So I'm taking a total break. End of story. That's it. And uh, so that is one tactic you can use. Uh, other ways to think about saying no. Read Seneca's On the shortlist, Shortness of Life would be a good start. And uh, revisit your own mortality and set memento mori so that you are constantly reminded of your own mortality. And I think this comes more naturally as you get a little older and you've had friends die in accidents and things like that. I constantly think about death and I find it therapeutic. Anytime that I take off in a plane, I ask myself, if I died right now, 
would I be happy with what I've been doing for the last 24 hours? And then if the answer is, I really would prefer not to be doing A, B, or C, I'll write that down and I'll journal on the plane as to how I can cut it out completely. Uh, the other is really fear setting. So let's do it. If, if you had, what are you putting off? Well, I'd love to say no to X, but I just can't. I'd love to say no to all speaking engagements, but then they'll forget me. They'll never call me again. What would happen? Okay, well, let's break that down. That seems like an assumption, so we can test that. Then you do a fear setting. You do the same thing. How could you get back? How could you mitigate? Blah, 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 blah. How could you get back to? Blah, 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 blah. And you run through and you're like, wait a second, this is ridiculous. <laughs> First of all, I think everybody's worried about what I'm doing. Not the case, by the way. Yeah. And <laughs> I our, saw something on Instagram the other day that said, nobody cares if you're not going to go to the party. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. If you're good, you can take your time. In a wonderful chapter titled The Jar of Awesome, <laughs> you talk about how you're very good at achievement, but historically not very good at appreciation. Terrible. Sort of coming full circle to oh, the yeah. earlier conversation we had. Talk a little bit about The Jar of Awesome and how it's helped you. <laughs> okay. I think that will help our listeners. Oh, The Jar of Awesome. If my 20-year-old self could hear me talking about this right now. Yeah, you even you, you yeah. kind of make fun of yourself yeah. in the book about it, but so, it's so good. It is good. And uh, I, a lot of my uh, listeners and their families have ended up doing this together and it's, it's like taking on a life of its own. All right. So I can't take credit for this. This was from an ex-girlfriend who observed very uh, fairly that good achievement, terrible at appreciation. I just really didn't take any time to celebrate the little wins or the big wins. And by the way, if you don't celebrate the little ones, you're not going to celebrate the big ones. And uh, this, like everything else, requires training. You yeah. fall to the level of your training. So she created this jar, it was a big mason jar, with these glittery stick-on letters on the side that say, Tim's Jar of Awesome. Now, I live in San Francisco. I'm a pretty woo-woo guy. I can handle it. But even for me, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> I have a glittery Tim's Jar of Awesome on my kitchen counter. What is this about? And uh, she, she explained. She said, no, 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 just try it out. Each day, I want you to write down one thing that was awesome or that was good that happened that day fold it up and put it in the jar. And then when you're feeling down or you're feeling overwhelmed, you can open up the jar and you can look at these, these pieces of paper. And even if you had a, you've had a terrible day, like didn't die today, great, reliable. That's, that's, <laughs> pr that's pretty awesome. You can find something. And this accomplishes a few things. Number one, if everything seems negative, if everything seems to be a mistake, your fault, just disasters behind you, disasters in front of you, disasters everywhere, you can gain some perspective and recalibrate to objective reality by going into the jar of awesome and reading through these things and realizing, you know what? All things considered, my life is pretty damn awesome. And uh, if you happen to have been lucky enough to be born, say, in the United States, like you're automatically in that club, generally speaking. And uh, secondly, it teaches you to spot the good. And this is a selective attention that is worth cultivating. Much like if you buy a car or anything, a new dress, a new jacket, suddenly you're walking around and you're like, everybody's buying my jacket. What is <laughs> there's happening? A, there's a technical term for that. I wish yeah, I could remember yeah. what it was. So it's this selective attention. You're just noticing something. It's like the red doorknob in the sixth sense. You're like, what? The red doorknob is in front of me the whole time. Similarly, when you start to train yourself and you add this filter, which is looking for the awesome, something good, you become better at doing it all the time. The last question I want to ask you is about advice. You said that the best advice you've ever received is that you are the average of the five people you associate with the most. Mm -hmm. So, Tim, who are the five people you associate the most with and Ooh. what do you think that says about you? <laughs> well, when I'm not at the Greyhound bus stop with my meth head friends, no. Uh, it very much depends on what I'm trying to improve. So, for instance, I'm in decent shape, but I want. Are you kidding? You're, you're, you have like abs of steel. <laughs> no, well, no. but I've I've been. Not in, that I've touched them. <laughs> I've read about them. A I've lot. been. I've been in. I've been in better shape, and it's a function of who you hang out with. If you go out to eat with your friends who are in incredible shape, you will get in better shape because that much maligned term shame is actually pretty useful, turns out. I would use shame for myself, being ashamed, if I went out with these people and I'm the only one ordering the fries and 
the side of sour cream and so on. My friends are just, they're not going to necessarily, they might just look at me and be like, <laughs> want to lose weight, huh? Good luck with that. And then they'd keep eating. So, uh, but right now I would say uh, there, there's some constants. So I have a friend, Kevin Rose, I spend a lot of time with. I'll be having dinner with him tonight, in fact. Uh, you, well, you can just look at my dinner tonight. So I have uh, Kevin Rose, who is a serial entrepreneur, very good investor. And he is very, very calm. He doesn't react to even exceptionally difficult or crazy situations with a loud voice, with anger. He's very good at tempering his response and rapidly thinking through how to handle situations, uh, quality. which is a quality I would like to cultivate in myself. Uh, but that would be one. Uh, my, my friend Matt Mullenweg, who is thought of as the lead developer of WordPress, which now powers 25% of the internet, and he is the CEO of a billion-plus-dollar company called Automatic. He's also in, in the book. He's also a really zen out cat. My Achilles heel is anger. I've always been very impatient and quick to anger. And uh, I don't throw things around. I don't yell at everybody, but I get very impatient. Even when I was a kid, and maybe this is from busing in restaurants, but I drink a lot of water. And if my water glass sat empty for a few minutes, I would just get up in a restaurant where I'm a patron, walk into the kitchen, grab a pitcher of water, come out and serve myself water. <laughs> I'm just not good at patience. Uh, I've been working on it. I'm working on it. Uh, Matt is also really calm under pressure. Uh, one of the many characteristics that I, I like. And then you have someone like Peter Atia, who's an MD, brilliant guy, one of the best doctors I've ever met, also has a history of ultra-endurance sports, swimming 25-mile races, things like that. So he's my brand of crazy. Peter is really good at questioning conventional wisdom and assumptions in medicine and elsewhere. And he'll find the holes. He'll find the holes, and then he will find better solutions. Well, it seems like you're trying to surround yourself with people that help you become a better person, too. Yeah, better person and uh, a more joyful, playful person. For me, success, whatever that means to people listening, whatever that means to me, that's not enough. I mean, success as we think of it, person at the pinnacle of their career, not enough. They've checked off half of what's necessary. That's it. I'm really more interested now in the second half. And uh, which is why, you know, the Tools of Titans ends on the why section. Because right now I feel like that is the necessary medicine for not only myself, but for a lot of people oh, in this in this the, country and beyond. For the world right now. Yeah. <laughs> for the world right now. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm, I've never been more optimistic. And uh, I'm really excited. And if you're going to chase something, I think chasing excitement more so than chasing happiness is a way to go. I remember reading, and this is not someone 2,000 years old, a quote from Jodie Foster, believe it or not. And the quote was, at the end of the day, success is sleeping well. You can really get a good read on how your life is going by how easily you go to bed and how you feel when you wake up. So I, I use that as a barometer for a lot these days. Tim Ferriss, thank you so much for coming on Design Matters today. And thank you for writing this remarkable book, Tools of Titans, The Tactics, Routines, and Habits of Billionaires, Icons, and World-Class Performers. To find out more about Tim Ferriss, go to his website, timferriss.com. You can also come see us on Wednesday, December 7th at Barnes & Noble in Union Square, New York City at 7 p.m., where I will be interviewing Tim again live, and you can get a signed copy of his brilliant new book. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick, published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.